0: Cardiac inotropy and chronotropy are regulated through hormones, sympathetic and parasympathetic innervation. However, after undergoing orthotopic heart transplant, sympathetic and parasympathetic innervation are lost. This significantly impacts baroreceptor and chemoreceptor reflexes, how the heart responds to exercise, and responds to certain antiarrhythmic medications. Sinus node dysfunction in the immediate postoperative setting, which necessitates epicardial pacing, may require the use of agents such as theophylline, terbutaline, albuterol, or isoproteranol. Tachyarrhythmias can occur at any time after transplantation. Furthermore, standard antiarrhythmics may be ineffective or require dose adjustments. Let's join pharmacist Tanner Melton to review the literature assessing drug selection and dosing for chronotropic and antiarrhythmic agents that may support the denervative heart after transplant.
1: The number heart transplants performed every year has been steadily climbing, with over 4,000 heart transplants performed in 2022. So with that being said, if you have not yet cared for a heart transplant recipient, buckle up, because they are coming. And a common complication after the surgery itself with heart transplant, for heart transplant recipients is arrhythmias. And this can be caused because of changes in physiology that occur, some of the medications we might use, and even direct insults from the surgery itself. And unfortunately, through this surgery, we do lose access to some of the important nerves for our heart, which plays a role in some of the medications we would normally use to manage arrhythmias, rendering some ineffective, some potentially hypersensitive, and some that we just have to make some minor dose adjustments to. So without skipping a beat, I'd say let's get to the heart of the issue. And look at changes that happen, in the physiological changes that happen in a heart once it lose, loses those nerve connections or denervation, as I will call it for the rest of the talk. And we'll look at the different pharmacological adjustments or changes that we might see to manage a slow heart rate and a fast heart rate or bradyarrhythmias and tachyarrhythmias. And before I move on, from now on, I'll pro- more likely refer to the, a low heart rate support as chronotropy when we need to boost the heart rate, just for ease of going through this pre- uh, presentation. So under normal circumstances for all hearts, whether it's transplanted or normally innervated, pardon me, there is an innate level of intrinsic heart rate at different nodal points throughout the heart. So at the very top, we see the SA node or the sinoatrial node, which beats at about 60 to 100 beats per minute. And then moving down, if we lose uh, access to that, we'll see 40 to 60 beats per minute in the AV node. And then to the fibers around the ventricles, we'll see 20 to 40 beats per minute. And if you look at somebody with a normally innervated heart, we still can see a 60 to 100 beats per minute range, which is what has been established as a normal resting heart rate. But the difference here is there's a lot more tight and rapid control to changes physiologically, as well as to exercise and baseline functions that could change a person's true resting heart rate. And this all comes about because of direct innervation through the autonomic nervous system, specifically our sympathetic and parasympathetic components. And that's shown here in a solid line to show direct innervation. The sympathetic nervous system, which is known also as your fight or flight, connects to the heart through the sympathetic ganglia chain, and when it's stimulated, works to boost up the heart rate, so uh, positive chronotropy, and also helps the heart squeeze a little bit. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the parasympathetic nervous system, which when stimulated tells the heart to slow down, hence its moniker of rest and digest. And this seems all nice and dandy, but there's more to it. So in the periphery, we have different receptors that sense things that are changing in our body and then work through these different nervous systems to make those changes. So first, we have our chemoreceptors, which are located in our aortic and carotid bodies in the medulla, which will work to sense changes in carbon dioxide and pH. And depending on the changes that happen without going too much detail into it for the sake of time, they will then work through these two symptoms to make the appropriate changes to our heart rate. And then our baroreceptors, which will sense blood volume and pressure. So think when you stand up or sit down really quickly, keying in on something like orthostatic hypotension. in uh, the aortic arch and carotid uh, arteries, they'll work the same way. So if there's a change in pressure and we need to adjust the heart rate to at least get our cardiac output changed quickly, this is how we'll do it. And our last component component is hormones. And I know there are countless hormones that we could really bring up and talk about the role in blood pressure, heart rate, et cetera. But today we'll really just focus on the ones that have direct roles on heart rate when it comes to the cardiac tissue. So looking more at the hormones released from the thyroid and the adrenal gland, particularly looking at the adrenal gland for catecholamines, because they can be released by the sympathetic nervous system, but at a much slower rate. And that'll come into play when we think about changes to our heart transplant physiology. Now, when we take a patient to go in for a heart transplant, we unfortunately, as I mentioned, have to cut the sympathetic and parasympathetic nerves in order to make way for this brand new heart. And in this process, like I said, we lose our nervous systems, and that renders our reflexes ineffective as well. So in terms of what's ongoing ongoing control, we see the hormones will have a direct impact to the heart rate of transplanted hearts. And now we see the heart rate is more so determined by that SA node as opposed to anything that the nervous system is really controlling. With the loss of these nerves and afferent nerves that sense other things going on with the heart, we do lose uh, variability in heart rate. So, and this is more in the sense of if we have physiological changes, your ability to move up and down with those changes. Patients with heart transplants tend tend to sit pretty close to about 90 beats per minute. So even though we said the SA node can beat 60 to 100, our heart transplant recipients sit closer in this 80 to 100 range more often than not. And this is what we'll see through the rest of the, the discussion. We also see a decreased exercise response. So think if you were to start skipping rope, go for a bike ride, walk up the stairs even, you'll feel your heart rate picks up relatively quickly in a matter of seconds. But in our heart transplant recipients, they don't have any nerves to really start increasing that heart rate in response to exercise. They have to wait for the sympathetic nervous system to stimulate catecholamine release and then wait for those to play their effect. So this is where we'll say do nice long warm-ups and nice long cool-downs because the time to speed up and slow down the heart is gonna be drastically elongated in this situation. And since we cut the vagus nerve for the parasympathetic system, we're gonna have no vagal response. So that's when you do the whole bear down, tell a patient to hold their breath and bear down or try to suck through a straw. The normal responses that we would or expect to see from that, we're not gonna see anymore. And then we also don't see chest pain or anginal pain in these patients because they lost the, the afferent connections to their heart. So they're more like they're unlikely to have those uh, symptoms for any cardiac issues that come up, as well as palpitations and a proper understanding within their body of orthostatic hypotension. They may not feel that dizziness as easily as other patients. And then lastly, we do see changes to the medications. So to keep this a, at a broad scope, those that would have a change in heart rate because of effects on, say, blood pressure, so a very indirect acting acting mechanism won't really see that heart rate change anymore. And those that work by targeting the autonomic nerve, so the sympathetic and parasympathetic connections to the heart are generally gonna be presumed to be ineffective as well. And then we do see potential changes in heart rate and our heart tissue receptor densities. And this can make some medications a little bit more hypersensitive in terms of their response. And that's something that we'll consider as we go through. To make this transplant possible, the old technique that was used historically was a technique called the biatri- uh, biatrial anastomosis or connections. And what surgeons did is quite literally how the name sounds. They connected the new heart around the left and right atria of the old heart and made these connections there. As you can see, this is very close to our conduction system in the right atria, which poses some issues for arrhythmias like we're going to talk about. Come 1991, a new technique was introduced clinically called the bicaval technique, where instead of having the right atria in particular, they shifted those connection points to the inferior, inferior and superior vena cava, and then moved the left atrial to include just the left atrial cuff, the pulmonary artery, and the aorta. With the hopes of trying to reduce these complications, primarily thinking about bradyarrhythmias and tachyarrhythmias, but both can still have these complications because they are still working close to that right atria, and altering the tissue and allowing for uh, tachyarrhythmias to ha- take place. So with all that, we're gonna slow down and talk about bradyarrhythmias. And the main one that we see for bradyarrhythmias in heart transplant recipients is sinus node dysfunction. And this is, uh, what happens here is when we, our sinus node is not working, we don't have the 80 to 100 beat per minute rate anymore. Instead, we'll see something closer to 60 beats per minute giving the idea that the AV node is the one running the show now, since we don't have our nerve, our autonomic nerves doing anything. And this happens in about 17.5% of patients. And if you go through literature, you'll see varying counts. And this really will depend on what type of surgery they had done is a big indicator for this. So the biatrial anastomoses by far had a higher incidence of this. In some studies, up to 40% of their patients having sinus node dysfunction after surgery and versus the by cable, it might drop down to 10%. So in general, we see our patients floating somewhere in this range, but towards the lower end with the newer procedures. Other risk factors are the graft ischemic time. So the longer our organs on ice not being perfused, the more likely we are to have risks with uh, bradyarrhythmias and sinus node dysfunction in particular. And then medications. So if they have intraoperative adenosine, there's been concerns of sinus node dysfunction there. And I will touch on that later on, actually. So stay tuned. And then the other one that has been a point of conversation has been amiodarone pre-transplant. And this has been difficult because there is a larger meta-analysis that came out that does suggest that there is an increased risk of sinus node dysfunction with pre-transplant use. However, when, in those studies, the, time, the duration of amiodarone use was very ill-defined and that are very variable, I should say. So some patients were on it longer and some patients were on it shorter. And the ability to discontinue it appropriately going into heart transplant thinking of if this is an emergent transplant, we may not have time to discontinue it. We want to keep this in mind with our patients, but not let this be a barrier of any kind to, actually, to them actually getting a heart transplant and just keep this on our radar that this could be something we have to manage going forward. And when we manage these patients, when they present with this, they can be asymptomatic, as a lot of patients are. And some cases have even noted that they've had asystole up to even death because of this this sinus node dysfunction in bradycardia but the one symptom they won't present with is chest pain, as we noted, because they lost the, those nerves to sense it. And our goal in treatment for this is really trying to hit that 90 beat per minute heart rate, since that's what we would expect the sinus node to do on its own. And we wanna avoid the use of permanent pacemakers just because it's another surgery to get it placed in the first in the first place. Um, if we have to adjust the wires, we might have to have more procedures from there. And then if we do end up having the opportunity to get it explanted, that's another procedure. And with these patients already being at increased risk of infection, just adds another source for that. So there's complications that we would want to avoid it. And it makes a little bit more sense too in this when we think about, okay, sinus node dysfunction normally only lasts on the scale of weeks to months. This is not an indefinite complication for a majority of our patients. So our treatment options are pacing. So we have temporary pacing and then the permanent pacemaker that I mentioned. But there are some medications that we use. For bradyarrhythmias, kind of in general, we've used isoproteranol and epinephrine and their role has relatively remained unchanged for the transplanted heart, having significant beta agonism to have that positive chronotropy, improve that heart rate and get the patient to their goal. The caveat here is they are IV only and generally reserved for ICU level of care. Another medication that we might think of is atropine that is generally used for bradyarrhythmias. However, in the transplanted or denervated, denervated heart, its role of blocking parasympathetic activity doesn't do anything anymore because we don't have that parasympathetic innervation to control the heart rate. It won't, we won't see any changes to the heart rate if we try to use it. So now it starts to raise the question okay, we might be looking at the scale of months for the sinus no dysfunction. I don't want to keep my patient on isoproteranol for months and keep them stuck in the ICU. So, do we have some oral medications? Well, don't hold your breath, because we do. We have the and terbutylene, which this is more of the off-label side of it. So they're normally used for respiratory disease states, but their off-site side effects can be very useful in this case. So with the offline having its adenosine receptor antagonism, we can see an increase in heart rate, and it has both oral and IV options, which makes it a very good transition to the care type of medication. And terbutaline has this beta agonism, which can beta 2 agonism in particular, which can increase the heart rate. Since these are off-label though, before we start using them, it's important that we look at what data is available. So for Theophylline, one of our earlier studies in 1993 by Redmond and their team defined this persistent bradycardia praetoc- as a heart rate less than 60 beats per minute just when they came off of the uh, positive chronotropes. So total duration of post-operative was not consistent, but that was their main definers. If you came off isoproterenol, was your heart rate below 60 beats per minute. And they, compare, they did a theophylline protocol change in their hospital. And so they looked at patients before the protocol and after and went to assess what was the differences in pace temporary pacing duration, permanent pacemaker implantation, and overall hospital stay duration. And for those that got theophylline, they started them on an oral regimen of 150 milligrams every 12 hours, adjusting it to that goal of 90 beats per minute. And what we saw was 16 patients got theophylline after the protocol changed compared to 49 before the protocol was put in place. And we saw a decrease in days of temporary pacing down from 12 to five. We went from 18 perman- 18 out of 49 permanent pa- patients getting a permanent pacemaker down to one out of 16. And then we saw the hospital duration decrease by 13 days. And for those patients that got the offline, we got a pretty wide dosing range. So 150 to 300 milligrams orally every eight to 12 hours. So we have this definitely leans to, okay, make this more patient-specific, and we have some variability here. The caveat being, they did measure, measure serum levels from a safety perspective, and in that, they had all their patients at 10 to 15 micrograms per milliliter. So this, in terms of safety, this did not raise any red flags in that case, with only one patient having an instance of supraventricular tachycardia or tachyarrhythmias, and they were the one who ended up getting the pacemaker, actually. Later in 1996, we have another study who, they did a weird two-part study. So we'll go through each part individually. And they defined the persistent bradycardia as a heart rate less than 70 beats per minute at post-op day four. So they had a little bit more of a specific data they were looking at. And for the first part, they compared heart transplant recipients with and without bradycardia, and wanted to see at six weeks, what was their average heart rate? How many patients needed a permanent pacemaker? and what was the overall hospital duration. For the second part, same definition of bradycardia, they took the heart transplant recipients that had bradycardia and compared them to patients that did not have a heart transplant, but did have some level of heart disease, and give them both theophylline to see what was the change in heart rate in the two hearts. Trying to see, okay, is there a difference in theophylline sensitivity to the two different types of heart situations. And for those that received theophylline, their initial dose was 300 milligrams IV once, and then they switched them over to an oral regimen thereafter. So, for the first arm, we saw 29 patients with bradycardia compared to 18 without bradycardia. And overall, they're, at six weeks, there was no difference in their heart rate, averaging close to that 90 beats per minute goal that we are looking at. The hospital duration was ident- almost identical between the two groups. And for those that did have bradycardia, only three needed pacemakers. Uh, as opposed to none in the group that didn't have bradycardia, which makes sense. And then for the sensitivity arm, we saw an increase of 27 beats per minute in the patients with bradycardia with a heart transplant, as opposed to as opposed to an increase of eight beats per minute in the patients without a heart transplant, suggesting that theophylline has a higher sensitivity towards stimulating that heart rate in a transplanted heart. And for our heart, for our heart transplant recipients with bradycardia their average dose ended up being somewhere around 475 milligrams a day. And they did not clearly define which formulation they were using, but this gives us some dosing options to consider. And then our last one in 2022 defined uh, sinus node dysfunction or bradycardia as a as less than 60 beats per minute, but this time at post-operative day 10 to 14. So a little bit farther out, which might mimic more clinical practices if your patient's in the ICU longer anyway, this might be a good time point to start to look at. Their only measure here was trying to reduce the number of permanent pacemakers that were implanted. And they started patients on 200 to 300 milligrams of the 24-hour extended release formulation once daily, and then adjusted it to that goal heart rate. And what we saw is of the 73 uh, uh, patients, 20 of them required permanent pacemakers over a course of seven months. So this was not all during their index admission. Some of them did persist much longer while on Theophilin, but still ended up needing the permanent pacemaker. And their average dose ended up being about 350 milligrams orally a day. And so putting this all together, since this is all the data we really have on Theophilin, we do have data to suggest this should increase the heart rate and effectively so in the heart transplant recipient with some extra sensitivity and at least can defer permanent pacemaker implantation for our patients, if not hopefully prevent it in a good majority of them like we see. Now, if your team were to ask you what's a good dose to use, if we have the 12-hour formulation on hand, you can look at somewhere between the 100 or the 200-milligram formulation twice a day. Try to find that balance for your patient. And if we have the 24-hour extended release formulation available, looking more at the starting of 300-milligram once a day dose, and then adjusting from there as needed for the heart rate based on what's available for your health system. For terbutaline, our first instance of literature is in 1989 was just a case report with a 37-year-old female that had a resting heart rate of 60 to 70 beats per minute when they turned off the pacing. And their goal was, okay, we want to use something to get their heart rate back up to 90 beats per minute and to avoid a permanent pacemaker. And so they gave them terbutaline in this case because of the known tachycardia as a side effect and wanted to try and just prevent this. So what they found is they got that 90 beats per minute. The patient remained in sinus rhythm, did not need a permanent pacemaker, and terbutaline was used for a total of seven days, and then she remained in sinus rhythm. So a pretty short course, and starting this proof of concept that this might work. Now, moving forward, the next two studies I will bring up are both uh, abstracts only, so we don't have much to, get, to dig into for them, but it still shed some good light on terbutaline. So first, from Dologolski and their team... They define this persistent bradycardia as just the need for heart rate therapy at discharge. a little bit more ambiguous at this point, looking just to avoid the use of a permanent pacemaker. And they used terbutaline from 2.5 to 10 milligrams orally three times a day. And what they found was about almost half of their patients had bradycardia, so a much higher rate than what we've seen already. And they noted no instances of permanent pacemakers in this case by the use of terbutaline. And here they noted only being used for 12 days while inpatient. Once patients were dismissed, we don't have data for how long they were on based on the abstract, but we still can see that no permanent pacemakers were used. And then our next abstract was by Baird and their team in 2022. And they didn't really have a good definition of sinus node dysfunction. They just kind of said for patients with sinus node dysfunction. And again, they looked at avoiding permanent pacemakers and then their goal is to try to treat patients off of isoproteranol. So they are looking at a much more specific group in this case. And their goal is to start with terbutaline five milligrams three times a day. And for the 11 patients that they looked at, three of them still ended up needing a permanent pacemaker. And they did not really define the duration of use of terbutaline, but they did note in the study that there, if there's no response in the first 24 hours, the use of a permanent pacemaker seems a little bit more likely given that all three who did not get a permanent pacemaker, did not respond in that first 24 hours. So it's something that may be key us in that, okay, if we don't see that initial response, maybe the permanent pacemaker is going to be more likely. And so with a little less confidence, given the lower level of data, we can still say, though, that terbutylene can increase heart rate, which we've seen as a side effect, and has potential to defer the permanent pa- implantation of a permanent pacemaker, hopefully prevent it, but we just don't have as much robust, as robust of data as the offline when comparing the two. And if we are going to use this, five milligrams three times a day is a good starting point because we have flexibility then to titrate to effect for our patients. And then trying to put this into a clinical practice. So if you look at a patient with persistent bradycardia and they're currently in, in the ICU, we can think about keeping on the temporary pacing wires and supporting them through something like isoproterenol or epinephrine. But when they're ready to move out of the ICU to a non-ICU floor, now we have to start considering, okay, is it time for that permanent pacemaker, or is it worth trying the medications, the offline or tributaline, to defer that, if not prevent it, and give give their sinus node time to wake up. So the next question is a case. So patient HT is post-operative day seven, currently at the PCU level of care, hemodynamically stable, and receiving temporary pacing to achieve a heart rate of 90 beats per minute. When they hold the pacing, HC is still hemodynamically stable, but their underlying heart rate is 60 beats per minute. The team wants to start a medication to facilitate the cessation of these pacing wires and get them ready for discharge. Now, moving on to the next part, looking at tachyarrhythmias will speed things up a little bit. So, tachyarrhythmias can happen in about up to 30% of our heart transplant recipients, so a higher occurrence rate. And when we're thinking about this, there's, again, atrial anastomosis is the key Risk factor here because it completely encircles the right atria, increases our risk for arrhythmias, particularly atrial fibrillation early on. And then we'll see a, atrial flutter later on due to other complications, such as the allograft vasculopathy or infections. The one thing to note with heart transplant recipients, though, is rejection can be a, a cause of these arrhythmias. So if a patient does present with an arrhythmia, well after transplant we need to work them up for rejection immediately because that could be a big concern and when they're presenting they should still have that shortness of breath they should still present with hypotension but just like with the bradyarrhythmias, arrhythmias they're not likely to present with chest pain or palpitations or anything like that so we'll have to be a little bit more creative in our assessment of these patients and then our goal once again trying to get back to what should be a heart rate of 90 to 100 beats per minute in these patients since that's where where their sinus node should be keeping them, and if we can keep them in sinus rhythm. And to do a large overview type of algorithm to think about kind of tachyrhythmias in general with our heart transplant recipients, first assess if they're hemodynamically stable, so playing off of old algorithms. If they're not stable, look at cardioverting as soon as possible If they are stable, we have more time to work up, okay, what's the cause of this? If it's a rejection or infection, let's start treating it immediately. And if it's not one of those, if it's something like allograft vasculopathy, which is just a chronic disease state that develops in our heart transplant recipients, treating it immediately is not entirely an option. So we can look at other non-pharmacological versus pharmacological options. However, non-pharmacological will not work in our patients because we're thinking about things like the vagal maneuver or the carotid massage. And since we've lost the vagus nerve connection to the heart, it's not gonna work. On the contrary, pharmacological medication, pharmacological options should still work. So we'll look at those. So two of the first ones we'll look at quickly are calcium channel blockers, particularly our non dihydropyridines so diltiazem and verapamil and digoxin. So for diltiazem and verapamil, overall, we wanna try to actually avoid these when possible just because they're moderate CYP3A4 inhibitors and can significantly decrease the metabolism of our calcineurin inhibitors to chrolimus and cyclosporin, and increase their levels and just make the care a little bit more complicated and increase risk of side effects. But they are still effective at that rate control if absolutely needed. For digoxin, this is rendered ineffective because its parasympathetic activity does not connect because there's no connection. It's not gonna work for rate control purposes. That being said, if you do need it for inotropy, digoxin will work from that perspective but in terms of heart rate, it won't help. Then moving down our list, beta blockers, another tried and true medication that we would normally think of. Overall, these are still very effective and could be one of our preferred rate control medications acutely. The one caveat you might hear from some providers or concern is, oh, using beta blockers will decrease our cardiac output in these heart transplant recipients and lead to worse outcomes. And as of now, this has not been fully substantiated by the literature, and there are ongoing trials to confirm this, but this concern is a more historical perspective. And at this point, beta blockers overall are fairly safe to use in heart transplant recipients. The only immunosuppression interaction caveat is carvedilol specifically can increase our cyclosporin levels. So pay attention if that drug interaction pops up. And then our next one, amiodarone, not a whole lot of changes here. It's similar efficacy. Its mechanism is relatively unchanged. The only thing is we do have to do monitoring because as we all know, amiodarone has a lot of drug interactions, particularly with our calcinerin inhibitors and sirolimus. So not as significant of an inhibitor as the uh, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, but still something we need to monitor. And then in terms of antiarrhythmic drugs, something like propafenone or flecainide, we can use these medications, But we need to roll out cardiac allograft vasculopathy first. And since this is a common complication in our heart transplant recipients, this may not be a go-to medication all the time. And the amount of time it would take to work them up for this and get proper screening, you want to treat the the arrhythmias faster. So something just to consider. And the last one that pops up a lot is adenosine, which I said I'd come back to. Now, this has been the source of some interesting conversations in the heart transplant world. And we'll look at a little bit of the literature that's there. Again, not a whole lot, unfortunately, but some interesting situations. So in 1990, along with some case studies, Ellen Bogan and their team did a study to look at healthy patients that were requiring other procedures. So this is going to be if they're a heart transplant recipient, they are coming in for a routine biopsy. And if they are a non-heart transplant recipient, so a normally innervated heart, they were coming in for an electrophysiologic workup of some other kind for unknown chest pain or something that allowed them to administer adenosine and have proper monitoring from there. And they just wanted to get a good description of what is adenosine doing in these two different types of hearts. And they did a dose escalation protocol starting at 37 micrograms per kilogram and going all the way up to 112 micrograms per kilogram. And what they saw was with 28 heart transplant recipients and nine normally innervated patients, a three to five fold increase of sensitivity to adenosine. And this puts it that all, this essentially meant that all of the heart transplant recipients responded to that uh, 37 microgram per kilogram dose, so very low dose. And when we transfer it to a patient getting rid of the weight based uh, dosing, so if you look at a 100 kilogram patient, this is about 3.7 milligrams or close to a three milligram dose. And going up, they were just now concerned okay, now these patients might have asystole or sinus node dysfunction or other issues, which has been seen in other case studies but was not shown in this study yet. And this in 2012, AHA really updated the recommendation for heart transplant recipients that overall, this should be looked at as a relative contraindication for heart transplant recipients. But if we need to use it, we should use a three milligram dose very cautiously with a lot of extra monitoring. 2017, Flyer and their team about essentially redoing this study but just with the heart transplant recipients since it was established they were more sensitive and they looked at a wider dosing theme going from 12.5 micrograms per kilogram up to 200 micrograms per kilogram and this translated to if you're over 60 kilograms a range of 0.8 to 12 milligrams and what they found is no instances of asystole even for the patients that went up to the, the max dose there was no asystole present and overall 96 percent atrioventricular blockage to indicate a level of efficacy for adenosine if a patient were to need it for a tachyarrhythmias. And what they did note though is based on their study, their recommendation was 1.5 milligrams or 25 micrograms per kilogram if you're less than 60 kilograms was a safe dose to start with and going in increasing doses from there was a safe practice and would be a good way to approach it. And so through this, in 2021 and 2022, two separate guidelines, so circulation, arrhythmia, and electrophysiology, and the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation adopted this dosing recommendation to say, okay, maybe it's not as relatively indicated anymore. Now we have more of a cautious view of it. Start with the 1.5 milligram dose if we need to with close monitoring, and then increase the dose as needed. Because a good rule of thumb with adenosine, it's easier to give more than it is to take away. So with that, we'll update our table to say, okay, adenosine can reduce the dose. We can reduce the dose of adenosine to 1.5 milligrams. And to make this nice and easy to remember, if we look at this like a traffic light, so in our red or avoid, we want to avoid digoxin just because it's ineffective. It's not going to help with our heart rate control. So don't reach for it. Within reason, avoid our calcium channel blockers because they have the most drug-drug interactions. If you're in a corner, we can use them. But... Because of the side effects we see with our calcineurin inhibitors, we like to avoid them when possible. In the yellow zone are our antiarrhythmics like propafenone and flecainide, just because rolling out this cardiogra- cardiac allograft vasculopathy and the risk factors associated with that puts them in kind of a cautionary zone. We don't always reach for them anyway. Caution with adenosine, as we said, because there's this concern for asystole or hypersensitive reactions. But if we use that low dose of 1.5 milligrams, we should be okay. And they can increase the dose as needed for that patient specifically. And then our good to go region is beta blockers and amiodarone. Overall, they don't have much changes in their mechanisms because they both directly target the heart tissue. Beta blockers might have some increased hypersensitivity because of a change in beta 1, beta 2 densities on the heart tissue after transplant. But we can always monitor this and make it patient specific anyway, as we already do with our dosing. And this brings us to the point where we'll leave you with some good takeaways and good summaries of everything. So heart rate control after the transplant, we lose our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system innervations. So we're really relying just on the SA node with no other contact from our reflexes. And I know I've talked about denervation the entire time. One thing to think about, one thing that does happen occasionally is a patient might get re-innervated. Now, the reason I save this for the end is because this is a very heterogeneous phenomenon that is not well, not well understood, not very consistent, and very patient specific. So something like the vagal maneuver, you could try it, but don't wait on that before trying medications, because it's not a guarantee that it'll work, especially if they're really close post-transplant. To have a nice, pretty algorithm for bradyarrhythmias post-transplant, If we have persistent bradycardia, we can start to look at ICU versus non-ICU level of care, as we talked about earlier. So if they're in the ICU, looking at those temporary wires and IV medications, if they're in a non-ICU level of care, do we need a permanent pacemaker, and are we able to try oral medications like our or terbutaline? The one clinical pro we'll leave is that atropine is rendered ineffective because of our denervation process, and there has been case studies that show that can increase tacrolimus levels. So just keep that in mind if a patient's on tacrolimus, which is most of our heart transplant recipients, that if we start theophylline, it may increase those levels, but not enough to where I would say it would bar the use of that. Just something to monitor closely. And then from a tachyarrhythmia approach, first, are they hemodynamically stable? If they are, first, let's rule out rejection and infection because those are two very important disease states that we have to manage in our transplant recipients from there we can try that pharmacologic non-pharmacological interventions that we talked about but they're likely to be ineffective unless by some chance it's years out and our patient happens to be re in which case great otherwise we'll look at our pharmacological op- options looking to avoid our diltiazim and verapamil when possible digoxin will be ineffective if we're going to use adenosine just reduce the dose to 1.5 milligrams and we should be good to go. And then if we need to amiodarone and beta blockers are good to use for acute periods long term, ongoing data looking into that currently. And the one pearl is that our calcium channel blockers, such as uh, Diltiazem and verapamil specifically and amiodarone can increase our calcium urine inhibitor levels. So if we go for one of these three medications, just be ready to closely, mo- even more closely monitor your tacrolimus levels and then a nice. Back to our stoplight. This time, adding in our bradycardia, so avoiding atropine because ineffective. Are good to go is isoproteranol and epinephrine, but the caveat being only in the ICU. But they're very tried and true medications. And then our yellow zone, we have we do have theophylline and just because we don't have the most robust data for them. But from what we saw in the studies, overall safe, no noted side effects. And when we did have serum levels, they were all within our safety range, but just not a lot of data to back them up since they're still off label. And then before we leave here today, some recommended readings, if you want to look more into this, that I found useful and helps to put this all together. So it's a lot of words, but the 2021 Circulation, Arrhythmia, and Electrophysiology Management of Arrhythmias After Heart Transplant, the 2022 ISHLT Guidelines for the Care of Heart Transplant Recipients, which goes more beyond arrhythmia. So if you really want to dig more into the care of heart transplant recipients. dig into that lovely massive document. Uh, And then the 2012 AHA, Arrhythmias After Heart Transplant Mechanisms and Management, to really understand where these arrhythmias are coming from.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.